Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On this episode, I want to share with you a presentation uh, that I gave earlier in the year, actually, for the uh, West Virginia Convention of Southern Baptists. This was a church cares gathering, a local gathering of pastors uh, working on educating themselves and eventually, you know, helping educate their congregations on the upcoming church cares curriculum. Well, since then, obviously, the curriculum has been released, but uh, this is an opportunity for me just to share with you a presentation that I did called What's Faith Got to Do With It? It was just one section of a larger full day uh, training for these pastors uh, who are learning and growing. I think anytime I get a chance to train pastors, it's a privilege. And yeah, it's also a privilege to share that uh, with you guys here on the PeaceWorks podcast. So I hope you enjoy. This will probably be part one of two. Uh, as I break the presentation up, but I hope you enjoy part one of this presentation. Uh, what's faith got to do with it? Being a pastor, God's been so good to me and allowed me to be involved in criminal corrections to a small degree, which uh, I was able to combine with my graduate work in biblical counseling. Uh, that's where the book came from and using my experience in intervention. So Tony is our sub for the Batter Intervention Group here in Putnam County. I'm one of the facilitators along with our friend Kim, who is also a member of Winfield Baptist. And uh, we, the three of us, manage the nonviolence education program for corrections here in the county. We've worked with hundreds of men. I, I don't even know, I know Tony's probably worked thousands of cases now. I think I've worked 500 or so cases personally of domestic <coughs> violence. And now I get to do this uh, around the, the world, really. And so when Brad Hambrick contacted me about the Church Cares curriculum, that was really exciting. I did not realize how much work a volunteer project would be. Um, and you guys have a way about you when it comes to committees and task force, don't you? So, yeah, not being SBC, I was, I was drawn in. Never again. I'm just kidding. Um, so, yeah, so today my task that we're going to try uh, to accomplish after lunch, if you'll stay with me, is to provide some theological and uh, ecclesiological underpinning to the things that Tony shared. So in that last hour, you guys got, and I'm not even kidding, because I've, I've been around these trainings for years, you guys just received a master class in domestic violence and sexual assault. Like, that was drinking from a fire hose. So you guys got literally a full day's worth of material out of this guy. Um, so I'm gonna try to bring some pastoral language and some pastoral realities to underpin that. This particular presentation is adapted from what I do in secular environments. So uh, I have a lot of Christian-based, biblical counseling-based presentations, but we felt that this would probably serve you best. So there will be some language that you might go, what, who does he think we are? Like, we, we know that. That's because I'm usually teaching this content to unbelievers, okay? But I'll definitely um, market it for you all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a rubric for me when I'm working with churches and consulting with churches about pastoral care. 
And so I'm a big believer in pastoral care. I believe the ministry of the word is a significant part of New Testament ministry. And that Paul gives us three examples or contexts in which the ministry of the word occurs in Acts 20. He said, I never neglected to teach you publicly. So preaching house to house. So small group discipleship, admonishing each one of you in tears, counseling. And so, you know, as pastors, ministers, ministry leaders, you are engaged in ministering the word in a multiplicity of environments. And I think 1 Thessalonians 5 really helps us see the types of people we're ministering to. We urge you to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I use this passage quite a bit to talk about team building and domestic violence and sexual assault care. Because really the church is set up as the only place and Tony can echo this, I believe. We're the only place in which we can establish an atmosphere of care where we can be patient with every person that walks through the door. Now, we're not always. And in this particular work, we tend to hold victims to a really high standard. We've got to um, heed the words that we just heard and actually care for people, not persecute people, which we tend to. And those approaches to caring for all these believers are first admonishment, right, confronting, there's a type of person, the idle or the unruly, and that can be passive or active, right? So it can be the aggressive abuser or it can be the passive uh, aggressive abuser. We have a responsibility, and that is to do the te'o, to put it in their mind, help them see what's wrong, uh, correct, offer new information. But we're also called to encourage the faint-hearted to come alongside people who are discouraged, and this occurs in abusive situations. And then lastly, to help the weak. And what do we help them do? We help them to hold on, and then we establish ourselves in a way to hold off. Does that make sense? I think one of the big misses in the church right now is we love a theology of suffering. I'm a big fan. But we deny a theology of oppression. And so we tell victims that 1 Peter 3 is really clear. You need to suffer well. Just like Jesus, trust God with the outcome, and we send them back to abusive relationships, but we don't heed 1 Peter 5 as good shepherds protecting the flock of God. Hello? Okay, two of you, great. So for the rest of you, the three of us are going to partner, because at the end of the day, we want you on board on this, because you guys are first responders. Tony alluded to, alluded to it. Harvard Divinity School study showed that clergy were the first people that victims seek out. And after the process is over, we were rated the least helpful. And that has got to change. It has got to change. We have not been serving people well. Why is this important? Well, it's important to think about our faith, our theology, the things that we hold dear, biblical truth, biblical authority, biblical sufficiency, because faith informs our worldview. What I mean by that is faith tells us what we believe about people. Our theology tells us uh, what we believe about relationships, what we believe about violence, and what we believe about respect. And unfortunately, and this is good because I'm, I'm not in the SBC. You don't have to invite me back, so this is good. <laughs> Here's a big issue. You ready? We care more in the church today about our theology of marriage and the safety of marriage than we do the sanity and safety of people in the marriage. We just do. And we will go to the ends of ourselves 
to preserve a marriage, even if it's fake, will avoid divorce at all costs, and people are dying because of it. They're dying here, here, and quite literally, as you heard uh, Officer Crego allude to. I'm not saying that we've got to be really happy, clappy about divorce and change our theology. I'm just saying we've got to talk about it openly and honestly because our knee-jerk reactions have been dangerous. And our theology is so much more broad than that. Even if we come down in the same place that we started, having a conversation benefits victims more than simply denying out of fear. Make sense? Again, good. Three or four. Good. And of course, violence and respect. I find interesting as I travel a lot, uh, I'm a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, so you don't really know what we believe. Um, we're like the Neapolitan ice cream of the evangelical world. You have to get to know each of us individually, which is great. I love that. But as I've traveled around and I've dealt primarily, and I don't mean to throw this particular tribe under the bus, but the, the largest group of evangelicals that I have to wrestle with are reformed or baptistic reformed individuals um, whose rigid adherence to certain theological principles as a surface level. Let me just say this. The doctrines of grace are awesome, but if you only deal with them up here, you will be an ugly person. Right? Right. right. And we are dealing with kind of a pandemic, an epidemic within the reform circles of violence, justified violence, kind of the just war theory of interpersonal relationships, or as we were talking at our table during lunch, the Bush doctrine of preemptive strikes, right? Got to get mine before they get theirs. We've really got to evaluate how we view these things as a worldview issue, and of course, respect. So I started studying this, obviously as a practitioner uh, years ago, but as God brought me into uh, doing graduate work in biblical counseling, I noticed that a lot of our tribe, the conservative evangelical tribe, had little to say about domestic violence. In fact, I tell the story that as I was gathering research for my thesis on uh, violence in the home, I had a cardboard file folder box. This would have been 2008 to 2011, and I had every piece of literature from a Christian perspective on domestic violence. Okay, those are primarily my wheelhouse. We'll allude to sexual abuse, but as you saw with Tony there, the heart is very much the same, which is what I want to get at today. Uh, one foul folder box. Now, there's much more now, but back then that was everything. And I don't just mean conservative Christians or um, conservative evangelicals. I mean everybody. Evangelical feminists, mainliners, um, integrationists, biblical counselors. The whole gamut was inside that box. There was so little written on the subject just 10 years ago. And I found that the church tended to fall in one of four categories in our response to violence in the home. Since then, I found a fifth. And, and again, this hopefully will give some underpinning to the things you've already learned, because you'll see the similarities here. Here are the responses I found uh, regarding domestic violence that I've encountered from the church. Number one, our response was, it's a justice problem. There were a lot of churches and ministries who said, Chris, Violence in the home is criminal and primarily the responsibility of law enforcement and the courts. Therefore, abusive men must be incarcerated. I don't disagree. However, this view is naive and incomplete. I love Tony, and Tony's exactly right. He's called to wield the sword. We're called to bear the cross, right? There's a beauty in that, isn't there? We don't have to have prisons and jails in our churches. I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> All right? 
<laughs> I'm a big fan. But the, the naivete of this phrase was seen in full force when the Paige Patterson thing happened. Sorry, you guys will in on that, right? Yeah. Okay, when the Paige Patterson thing blew up, ministry after ministry after ministry issued responses that went something like this. Not only is abuse sin, it's a crime. You must report abuse. Well, that's naive. Why? First of all, it assumes that all abuse is criminal. And it's just not. Did you know the vast majority of what Tony described under coercive control and the power and control will are completely legal in our society? Am I, am I out on this, Tony? Or am I right? You're wrong. Yeah. So it assumes that domestic violence is always criminal. It's just not. The second, it assumes that the punishments for domestic violence or abuse in the home are severe. And they're not. Trust me, I've been... Uh, at the heart of that for 12 or 13 years. This man has been sending people our way for that amount of time. And he can tell you and I can tell you, it takes a lot to really get convicted anywhere of crimes of abuse. I heard one Christian leader, he was a prominent SBC leader, actually. He has since come around. He's got much more nuanced and robust statements, but he once said that uh, God is a judge on a throne, not a social worker in the office. Abusive men need to be placed in prison, not given counseling. We should protect women and children and demand that the government incarcerate men who commit these crimes, right? Problem is, that's not how it works. The church has a huge role to play in prevention, in intervention, and in postvention, if that's even a word, that's men. Right? In informing young men about the way God designed us understanding power and control from a biblical perspective, intervention, being strong enough to not remain silent, right, but to confront the unruly, and then postvention coming alongside when everything has just blown up. We have a huge role to play. But unfortunately, we have developed a culture in the church, guys, that is either cover it up, which is wicked, hello, demonic, it is. Or refer it out. I'm all for referring to proper sources, but sometimes the church is the only option and the best option for much of what we're talking about. Second, Tony alluded to this. I want to give you a little bit of underpinning as well. I've heard this. Chris, this is an anger problem. Violence is a result of anger, and therefore we must address the perpetrator's anger and anger cues. Anger is involved in acts of violence, but typically I see it as a tactic, not a root. If anger works, I'll use it. As Tony said, if I get what I want by being angry, I'll be angry. But the moment anger stops working or someone holds me accountable, then guess what? We run the risk of creating polite abusers who only commit respectable sins. We haven't dealt with the heart. The other problem is if we only address anger and anger cues, guess what the perpetrator's anger cue almost always is? Her. Counselors have fallen into this trap over and over and over again where they've done marriage counseling instead of violence counseling and the wife is responsible for his anger. Well, again, you know, if you were more submissive, he wouldn't blow up. If you were more loving or if you would have more sex, I don't know where that one came from, but that comes out all the time in church-based counseling. And uh, as if 1 Corinthians 7 was only written to men. You can't turn me down. But where is that written? 
if your body belongs to her, her body belongs to you, then you guys should be able to say yes or no. That should be the very definition of mutuality. No? Okay. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm on the right track. Number three, Chris, this is a marriage problem because uh, this type of violence is a result of conflict within a marriage. It takes two to tango. I don't know what that means. Um, I'm not a dancer. I went to Christian school. Uh, uh, true story. Uh, but I have watched Dancing with the Stars, and I can tell you, while it takes two to tango, it only takes one to screw it up. So this is violence and sexual assault in the home is never a mutual problem. It is one person using power to control another. Therefore, Chris, we should offer biblical marriage counseling. I love marriage counseling. I'm a big fan. I wish I could do more marriage counseling. Unfortunately, I'm dealing with perpetrators all the time. I'd love to do more marriage counseling. But just because this occurs in the context of marriage does not make it a marriage problem. The worst thing we can do is to immediately prescribe marriage counseling in these situations. When abuse is present, marriage counseling is not effective. It's counterproductive for a couple reasons. How in the world is the victim going to disclose or be honest when she, usually she, is in the same room with her perpetrator? What consequences will the victim experience on the way home? And what hidden language, cues, body language is the victim aware of that totally goes over our head? And how often does the perpetrator use the counseling room to collude with the counselor to find an ally or what we call in the biz flying monkeys right you know, remember the wicked witch she was sent flying monkeys allies that will attack indirectly the victim fourth i wish this wasn't the case but we still have this in our circles in fact there's a book it's still in print drives me crazy i've sold five thousand copies of my book hooray there's a book out there has sold seven hundred fifty thousand copies in which the author says you should treat your husband as if he is God and should participate in acts of violence, sexual promiscuity, even orgies if he asks you to, because he is representing God. Are you kidding me? And still being circulated. I got a problem with it. Is that strong enough? I got a problem with that book. All right. And buy my book. There's two. There you go. This one, violence is the result of frustration with an unsubmissive wife. This is still out there. Violence is not justified, but understandable. I call those the big butts of evangelicalism. I know he hit her butt, she's a nag. I know he assaulted her sexually, but she wouldn't give in, and he has needs. But, 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 we've got to throw those big butts out. Violence is exaggerated. We already heard that from Cor uh, Sergeant Crago, almost demoted you. From Sergeant Crago, about the problem with that. Therefore, I've been told we must teach biblical submission and a theology of suffering. I'm a big fan of both of those. I'm probably among the minority, the unicorn tribe of domestic violence advocates in the world of faith that is uh, complementary. I get a lot of flack for it. Uh, we'll, we might be able to get into that during Q&A. Uh, I love biblical submission and biblical headship. That's not what's being taught here. Right. Right? right. If husbands are given the authority to subjugate or subordinate their wives, that's not submission, that's oppression. That's true. All right? And husbands who see power over as headship 
are viewing Jesus' words in the New Testament through the lens of the world, not through the Jesus hermeneutic of servant leadership, power under authority. All right? And a pathological problem. This is the most recent. Again, Tony alluded to this. Uh, I've seen this so much more in the Christian world. It's really frustrating. Domestic violence or sexual assault is a result of a mental disorder, such as narcissistic personality disorder, intermittent explosive anger disorder, uh, what we used to call character disorders. You guys remember that? Those of you in counseling, remember we used to call them character disorders, now they're personality disorders? I miss character disorders. Call me weird. I miss it because I really feel like character disorders give people hope. And personality disorder sounds like it's just who you are. And it, I wish we could go back and say, no, this is just a label. So we can build insurance or whatever, right? This is a label. I had one guy, he had IEAD, intermittent explosive anger disorder. Had it bad. Come to find out, he, he every once in a while get really mad. And I said, I bet it's when you don't get what you want. Yeah! <laughs> no, we have some biblical language for that, don't we? There is no pathological cause to domestic violence. Instances of violence, like when my schizophrenic grandmother used to hit me with her cane, yeah, I wasn't a victim of violence, family violence, right? Targeting a victim requires deliberate action and choices. It engages volition. You will not find a pathology. Addiction, uh, there might be co-occurring issues. We often tell our guys in group this, especially alcohol-dependent alcohol guys, Alcohol does not change your values, just your judgment. <clears throat> How many drinks will it take to violate your values? Well, there's no amount of alcohol on the planet that are going to violate that. Now, there are some exceptions, like the guy who only got violently drank moonshine. And that's totally <laughs> outing us, right? But for the most part, there's just no pathological connection. What about genetics? The only genetic indicator that predisposes you culturally to violence is a Y chromosome. That's it. You're much more likely to participate if you're a man. That's it. There's no other genetic markers so far as we found. God help us if we try to find one, because it's a matter of the heart. There's no outside force. Therefore, all we can really do, they would say, is to label and treat the offender. And they don't even want to treat the offender, they want to treat the label. Actually, I think what we've got on our hands, guys, is a heart problem. Yeah. Amen. Violence begins in the heart of an abuser, and therefore the gospel is their only real husband. Amen. I have people who will push back at me, Christians, people who claim to be Christians, who despise me because of this very point. Did Jesus die for violent people? I say yes. I say the very instrument of his death was designed for violence. And he willingly took it because he loved us. The most desperate, right? And the most respectable of us, right? Because yeah. we're all drilling holes in the boat. The whole thing's going down. So I believe the most effective means, and I'm like Tony, I use he and she pronouns just because the same reason when I teach on or talk about elder abuse, I don't talk about elders abusing their caregivers. It happens, but that's not what we're talking about. I will be happy to spend the rest of my life talking about women's violence against men if we can get this one right first. Yeah. All right? If we can just get this one, men's violence against women, I'll be happy to switch my tune. I believe the most effective means of reducing violence against women is addressing the hearts of men. 
Two groups there. One, perpetrators. We have to call perpetrators to repentance or discipline them swiftly and harshly. We cannot be wishy-washy anymore. We certainly can't hide them, especially if they happen to have reverend in front of their name, or they happen to give a lot to our seminaries, or whatever they might be, right? We've got to call them to repentance or discipline them appropriately. Second group of men are good men. The vast majority of men in our churches who don't perpetrate acts of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, or otherwise. It's estimated that 20 to 25% of men perpetrate these acts against women. That means there's 75 to 80% of us who are not doing that. And you know what's the most glaring problem in the church today to, from a victim's perspective is the rest of us say nothing. I believe, and this is where my, again, you don't have to fight me back, that's fine. I believe the big issue in our churches right now is that this is a men's issue and we've treated it as a law enforcement issue or a women's issue or a marriage issue. It's a men's issue. Right. We're perpetrating the crimes. It's time for us to stand up and say enough is enough. Yeah. Cool? Yeah. All right. I got more. I'm winning them over, Craigo. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some of the ways in which these acts violate our theology. Number one, abuse violates the belief that people are made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. Scripture teaches us that people are sacred space. When you physically assault another human being, you are violating the very image of God. Hello? I'm a big believer in this. Not just physically, but relationally and emotionally. We emote because God emotes, do we not? We are unique. God has created us uniquely. House plants are not gathering today on a Saturday to discuss violence against each other. They're just not. Right? The dogs in my neighborhood are not like, hey, how are you doing today? Well, why do you think we're here? I don't know why we're here. What? No, they don't do that. We do that. We're unique. Scripture teaches us that people are sacred space. God exists in perfect relationship. Therefore, we're relational. And when abuse enters a relationship, it violates the very heart and the very image of God. And we're created for his purpose. Certainly not this. Certainly not destructive purposes. 